You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hi, this is Tim from The Good GP. I'm excited to announce that we're recording a live show at the GP22 conference in Melbourne on Friday, 25th of November. If you're attending GP22, please come down and be part of a fun and interactive session. We'd also like to invite any attendees who want to meet the team and have a chat about the podcast to catch up at the Conference Exhibition Centre on Saturday, 26th of November during the lunch break. We'll provide more details of the location during the live podcast show on the Friday. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Good GP. And before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners from the lands upon where our listeners are, and in particular, Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation, where Hui and I are meeting. My name's Sean Stevens, and today we're interviewing Dr. Hui E. Hui is a specialist gastroenterologist and head of the Department of Gastro at Sir Charles Gardner Hospital. Amongst a great number of other things, he's also co-authored the current national NHMRC endorsed guidelines for colorectal cancer screening and colonoscopic surveillance. Today we'll be talking about the National Bowel Cancer Screening Program and the critical role that GPs play. Welcome, Hui. Thanks, Sean. It's a great pleasure to be here today, and I I hope that uh, we can uh, discuss various things which might be of use to you. Thanks very much. So, Hui, the National Bowel Cancer Screening Program has been going since 2006 and now offers all Australians screening every two years from age 50 to age 74. Can you tell our listeners how successful the program has been compared to other screening programs in Australia? So, although the program began in theory in 2006, Really, it has become fully operational and fully functional only uh, in late 2019, where where the full spectrum of ages from 50 to 74 were invited every two years. Prior to that, it was uh, a program that was uh, started off in a much more piecemeal fashion. And so one of the issues is that at last, uh, we can now fully advertise for people to participate and so on, because in the past, when only a few age groups were invited, it was more difficult to advertise. And so as a consequence, the recruitment and participation is probably lower than the two other screening programs, specifically uh, breast and cervical screening. The other thing, of course, that's also different is that bowel cancer is uh, a program that involves both males and females. So again, male participation tends to lag behind females in doing these sorts of uh, public health kinds of initiatives. But in terms of how successful it's been, well, in the years that it has run, uh, reviewing the data and so on, it has been shown to have uh, a significant impact on mortality so that when they've analyzed the data, uh, participants have a 15% reduction in mortality, even when corrected for lead time bias. And uh, the other thing that has also been demonstrated is that uh, people who participate in the program are found to have their cancers at much earlier stages. And so for all the listeners, you will know that in bowel cancer, especially if you catch it at an earlier stage, the chances of cure are much higher and also the need for chemotherapy, radiation and so on is much less if you catch it earlier. So in those regards, it has been deemed a very successful program. The real issue is to get more people to participate, to make it even more successful, if you like. Mm, yeah, look, I agree. I think part of it, speaking to my patients, is people don't want to collect the specimen. Um, that's that's what really puts a lot of people off. Aha, uh-huh, right, right. So those sorts of things, you know, as part of the uh, enrollment media uh, 
sort of drives and so on, they, they are aware that what they call the ick factor or the yucky factor or whatever has to be overcome. So that's part of advertising and other campaigns to try and overcome. Mm, yeah, look, absolutely. And I think that's one of the critical roles we as GPs have to play. You know, when you explain to patients that it's actually an extremely good screening program and it's been proven to save lives, and as you say, 15% mortality reduction, most people are willing to scoop a bit of poo um, just to make sure that uh, they are in that lower risk category. What I say to them, Sean, in a sort of jokey kind of way is to say that, you know, you don't get many chances to give the brown stuff back to government. So, you know, so here is your one chance to give some of the brown stuff to government. So why wouldn't you want to do it? <laughs> I'll have to remember that one next time I have that discussion. Apart from encouraging our patients to send brown stuff back to government, what other roles can uh, GPs play in this program? So I think by and large, that is a very important role to try and encourage participation because because the other advantage, what what is not so clear is that by encouraging people to participate in the program, it hopefully also is a way of diverting resources away from wasteful colonoscopies, especially, which are of low yield. So if, if people do the program as a pathway to get their colonoscopy, uh, it's a much more efficient method. So for example, someone who ends up being positive in the program uh, has a 60 times more likely chance of having a cancer than someone who ends up being negative. So already that is a, that is a more efficient uh, process. Um, so that's, that's a very important thing to encourage participation in this program. One of the things that is also not clear in the program is actually obtaining a colonoscopy when someone is positive should, in theory, also be encompassed into the program, although most people view the program as just getting the kit. Actually, it's all the pathways to include uh, colonoscopy. And that's the second component of uh, the GP involvement to, to try and negotiate uh, a colonoscopy in this current climate of waiting lists and, and so on. And so the double message is that on the one hand, we want them to get a colonoscopy, but if we also reduce wasteful, unnecessary colonoscopies, we don't jam up the system and prolong their waiting times. Uh, so that's another important uh, GP role to try and get them a colonoscopy uh, as soon as possible. At the hospital and at the recommended levels, a, a positive FOBT is deemed a category one uh, urgency. So it is highly prioritized. But of course, it has to compete in the business as usual model with all sorts of other um, indications for colonoscopy. Then the other thing, which is a bit more onerous, is that there is also uh, there are data forms that need to be filled out for the program. You know, various tick box forms to to log in what has happened to the patient. You know, have you sent them for a colonoscopy and so on. And and ideally, if those could also be filled out so that the program can get some notification of what has happened to to the patient. And and you know th that is onerous. There used to be a small payment and uh, it's uh, been reduced to zero. So there's no real incentive. Don't worry, we GPs are used to that. Well, indeed, indeed. And I, I feel for you guys, it's, it's really it's tough out there. <laughs> yeah. Just a word for GPs out there who may not be aware of it. There is now a link um, to the most common 
clinical software packages, best practice and medical director to the National Cancer Screening Registry. And you can fill out those forms um, direct from your clinical software. And you can actually order new kits for patients who have thrown out their old kits, but you managed to convince uh, to get one done. So it's actually quite, uh, quite a useful resource that's only come out in the last year or two. That's a good point, Sean. I think that's very helpful for them to know that. The other thing, of course, is that unfortunately, not not everyone who has got a positive test actually should be sent for a colonoscopy. There are some exceptions, and it's worth knowing that. So, for example, you know, if it was an entirely inappropriate thing to do, for example, if someone is already very, very critically unwell and so on, or they have significant cardiorespiratory or other sorts of diseases, they did not know better, they participated in the thing, they come back with a positive, it's sort of a balance of working out whether it is worth putting them through the whole washout, the whole bowel prep and everything of colonoscopy, or whether it's it's less appropriate. So statistically, someone who has a positive test will have about a three, three and a half percent chance of harboring a cancer, which means that 97% of the time they won't have a cancer. So that's something to, to bear in mind, the, the weighing the pros and cons of proceeding with colonoscopy. If they've had a colonoscopy within the last two years, then again, because colonoscopy is so much more accurate, the chances of this being a true positive is going to be also lower. And and generally, it is felt that if they've had a colonoscopy within two years or so, they probably should not need to have another one again. Mm, Great. One of the other things to let patients know is also, and this is very difficult, this program has, if you like, imposed an anxiety on them by saying, look, you know, you've done this, well done, but now you're positive. So the recommendation is that they should ideally have a colonoscopy within about 30 days, largely to allay the anxiety. But it's a harder thing to convince them that actually the evidence shows that within about a 120-day window, in terms of a delay to colonoscopy, there is no change in prognostic outcome. Seems a long time if you're harboring a, a, a cancer, but the evidence shows that even a delay of 120 days is still within a safe zone, if you like, if, if there are delays with colonoscopy access. And that's something, if you like, to, to inform the patients. Although we don't want to have any delays, the, the pragmatic reality is that there are delays and it's not absolutely so critical, uh, even up to 120 days. That's good advice. Thank you. So what are some of the operational issues that the program faces? So for me, one of the biggest operational issues is this uh, jockeying for colonoscopy space and colonoscopy in a timely fashion. So at the last uh, sort of uh, monitoring report, the average delays for colonoscopy was about 50 uh, days or so. And I've already told you that that's sort of longer than, uh, than what is recommended in the guidelines. So ideally, if, for example, there was a quarantine pathway where it was all encapsulated, where, you know, there was a a way to fast track them, that would be ideally a better situation for the program to to have. But of course, the the colonoscopy access was determined at the state level, whereas the the actual kits are are sent out by a federal uh, sort of thing and, and, you know, state federal issues always uh, potentials for uh, for hiccups and things to occur. But the other big problem is data collection. In the same way that GPs have to fill out uh, forms and so on that inform the program of what you've done, the colonoscopists too should also be informing the programs on, on you know, how many polyps they found and so on, what, what they found in colonoscopy. And that is very, very poorly filled in, again, because there's no financial incentive to fill out these forms and it's not mandatory. 
And then at the next level, the histopathology forms are also not well filled out. Again, for the very reason, th these are the most cumbersome of forms because there, there is quite a lot of detail that is required. And at the moment, there is a, a big gap in terms of what uh, histopathology data is going back to the, uh, to the program register. So what the program has done is they have tried to use a kind of de facto monitoring system by looking at Medicare sorts of uh, results to work out who's had a colonoscopy and so on. They try and link up with cancer registries and see, you know, how many cancers and so on were found. But but that is already suboptimal. Ideally, there should be some kind of mandatory reporting system mm. uh, where the program knows exactly what happens to the participants. They know exactly what the colonoscopy findings were. They know exactly what the histo findings were. And then they can they can put all of that together to get a much more precise and complete record of the findings so that they can inform further uh, decision-making for the program. Great. Now, just finally, can you briefly tell us how we handle the situation of the merry-go-round of colonoscopies? As GPs, we often get recommendations for, you know, a repeat colonoscopy in three years or five years and, you know, with patients with, you know, low-risk polyps. Yeah. How would you advise us GPs to be able to circumvent this merry-go-round uh, using an evidence-based approach that's safe but not going to leave us medico-legally exposed? So here I have to confess that there are national guidelines, you know, these NHMRC endorsed guidelines and colonoscopy surveillance, meaning that if you find one polyp, you, you recommend this. If you find, if there are five polyps found, you recommend this and so on. But, but they are so cumbersome and so complicated that it is actually, they are not particularly user-friendly. Um, I, I don't simply know a way around this, except that probably pragmatically, the simplest way is the, the MBS funding has tried to simplify this to say, uh, if you have X number of polyps, this is when you should be rebooked. And if you have uh, certain sorts of features of the polyp, this, this is when uh, they should be rebooked. So typically, the sorts of things are like if there are two or less polyps, if there are something like uh, three to, to nine or so on, and, and then 10 and above and so on, there are different sorts of recommendations. And, and the MBS sets them all out. They're all colonoscopy, but they give you some idea of how many years ahead to do the uh, repeat surveillance. I think pragmatically, again, economic drivers are very, very effective. And so many services will follow what payments will allow. And so, so that is a simplified and a pragmatic approach of, of working out when the next colonoscopy should be, if the endoscopists themselves haven't specifically stated that. Right. One of the problems, though, is that in a lot of these guidelines, the safety margin is so big because the guidelines will not recommend an interval if the risk of cancer in that interval exceeds about 1%. So that, that is already, if you like, generating a lot of low value activity because they say, well, if you come back in five years, the, the chance of them having a cancer is still less than 1%. But you know, just in case, we better get them back in five years. Well, as you can see, that sort of creates a whole, dare I say, over-treatment yeah. uh, in itself. But, but I think no one dares to medically yeah. say, well, don't come back unless it's a 5% risk. That, that's deemed too high, you see. It's a difficult issue. It is indeed. I'm not sure whether I've really given you a, a very useful recommendation, but but you know, pragmatically, the MBS might be the way to go. Yeah, no, no, that's fine. We do have to live in the real world. 
Hui, thank you for all of your insights. This has been very informative. Thank you very much and uh, please keep up the good work. Thanks, Sean. It's a great pleasure. The Good GP is produced and edited by the team at RACGPWA. If you've got any questions or would like to contact The Good GP, please feel free to email us at thegoodgp at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.